So I, I tell this all the time. I love hearing Stephanie downstairs. And I'll tell you why. For some people that are here for the first time, you're like, dude, those kids are loud. We, for several years of our life and little existence as a little church plant, operated at Will Rogers Theater. We had our kids crawling on floors outside of bathrooms with who knows what had happened the night before out there. And all, I mean, we are just so blessed that we're in a place that God has allowed us a place that we can give space to our kids to go learn about Jesus. So we deal with a little bit of noise and we just kind of like it. So if you're here for the first time and you think it's kind of loud, it'll get worse. So just hang in there with us. Um, our kids are downstairs playing and learning about Jesus, and it's just part of kind of the space that we have. And so um, it's exciting. And I was telling the 930 service, I can imagine she was loud in the first service, like hollering. And I could imagine her standing on the table telling our kids about Jesus, and they're excited. She's, I can hear her telling the story. And I just think, man, this is what I've longed for for our children so long, to have someone who passionately in love with Jesus that wants to tell our kids about Christ and help us as families and as people love our children well. It's a responsibility of the whole church, the whole church. So very, very cool things that God is kind of allowing us to experience. So I just glanced at my watch and we're in big trouble. So here's the deal. We're going to get through some stuff really, really quick. I just, I knew this was going to happen, but here we are. So I'm going to blaze through a few things today um, to catch us up kind of up to speed with where we are, and then skip a few things so that we can really kind of focus on what's happening as we study the book of Philippians together. So for the past eight weeks, we've been walking through the book of Philippians, and I've kind of made the commitment that we're not going to kind of take a break for Christmas and do a bunch of just kind of stories of Jesus in the manger and, and wise men and all those kind of things, which are really pertinent, important at this time of year, but instead just kind of keep moving through the book of Philippians. And here's my, my kind of logic as to why. Christmas is really, as I've said multiple times, not just about a singular event that took place 2,000 years ago that we celebrate the coming of a baby, a Christ child. Christmas is actually the culmination of God's redemptive work in history. From the moment he breathed life into creation, tracing him through the Old Testament, through the people of Israel, through the promised Messiah, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately in his return. In other words, the picture of Christmas, of Advent, is the expectation of longing of the coming gospel. It's the picture of God's extravagant love for us. And as we've been going to the book of Philippians, we've been coming face to face with the gospel, and the gospel is the picture of Advent. It's a picture of Christmas. So sprinkled all through what we're studying is God's incredible, extravagant, amazing love story. So we decided to just kind of keep moving through. And we are in the book of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14 today. Now, I'm going to give you a very brief recap of where we were because we have to understand what took place last week in order for us to understand what we're talking about this week. Okay, so I'm going to do this really quickly and then we're going to dive into a couple of things and try not to go uh, real long today. But here's the thing. Last week we dealt with a really complicated verse and we kind of laid it out there as complicated. We said it's one of those verses in scripture that we just kind of have to deal with. And a lot of us don't like it and the way it looks and so we skip around and pretend it's not there. But we have to deal with it, and if we actually look at it and look at it in its context, it makes a lot of sense. And the verse we looked at last week came out of the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. And it says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed uh, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we talked about it extensively. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? So I started and very briefly explained from basically creation through the resurrection and promise of return of Christ, the plight of humanity in a very sort of nutshell kind of way and our need for a savior, that salvation is not something that we can earn, but a gift that's given. 
And we explained it and talked about it that way because we have to understand salvation before we can understand what Paul is talking about. Is Paul challenging us that we have to work for our salvation? Is he saying that it's something that we have to work for or something that we can lose? And that's the question that makes this verse difficult. But as we looked at it, we realized that it's actually a little bit more simple than that. And if we just explore it, we would understand that it actually is a really powerful picture of the promise of God. And we looked at it in two categories. That salvation actually has two parts. The first part of salvation is something that was done for us. That wrapped up in our own sinful nature and our sinful life, we had no way to find our way to God. God had to come to us, take initiation with creation, and for our sins, send his son Jesus to die and give us life. And that is nothing we can do or earn. That work was done for us perfectly and completely. All right? And we attached a word to that theologically, a kind of a $10 word, that's the word, word justification. And the word justification means that God, through no my doing of my own, has taken me, has rescued me, has saved me, and taken me from my sinful life to the promise of abundant life and eternal life in heaven. That's the promise of God. It's the word justification. And it means that I've been justified, rescued, delivered, saved. There's nothing I can do. All right? The second part of salvation, the first one's work done for us. The second part is a work that's done in us. All right? And there's another fancy word that's attached to it, and that word is sanctification. And that word literally means the ongoing maturing or developing of my relationship with Christ. It is actually the process of being made holy. And not holy like perfect or righteous, but holy like being set apart, which is what that word means in Scripture. It doesn't mean perfect. It means our set-apartness, that we have been set apart for a holy, another purpose. Sanctification is the idea that I am growing and maturing in, always in my salvation. So what Paul's saying essentially is this, continue to work out your salvation, meaning, church, this has been given to you, free gift of, of grace through Jesus Christ, that once you receive him as Lord and your Savior, you are saved, end of story, done, period. Continue to work out that salvation, that sanctifying process, that maturing process with fear and trembling. This morning, we're going to look at a couple of things, a couple of ways that that sort of happens and plays out in our life. A glimpse into what it looks like for you and I to mature and grow into our salvation as we mature in our relationship with Christ. So open your Bible to the book of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. So all that to just get us to these verses that we're going to be looking into today. So book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Before we open it together, let's pray. God, I thank you. Um, I, love, I love this church. I love the church, Big C, the whole thing, the whole messy kind of conglomerate that it is with its denominational issues and its people issues and its struggle issues. God, I just love the fact that you choose to reflect your love to the world through the church, that you challenge the church to have a mission together. And so, God, I pray that our particular church, this little thing that we do here, would be an expression of unity as laid out in Scripture, and that, God, we would want to be a part of your bigger plan. God, as we open your word today, I pray that you would teach our hearts, that you would teach our hearts about what it means to live an expression of growth and maturity in Christ. Take a moment in your own life and just ask God to, um, to teach you something this morning. However simple that may be, just whisper that prayer in your own life. God, I ask that you would teach me something this morning. take a moment and pray for someone uh, beside you, around you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name, even if you think it's kind of weird, just, just try it. Just pray for someone else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. (laughs) 
Lord, we love you. We thank you deeply for your truth. And we pray, God, that you would teach us this morning in a really profound way. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to blaze through some stuff and skip over some other things because um, there's some powerful truths here. So we've got our starting place, which is Paul saying, continue to work out or grow or mature in Christ. All right? Continue to do that, right? For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. And this is where we pick up today. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So it's kind of interesting because Paul has basically just said, continue to grow and mature in Christ. Work out your salvation. Be sanctified. Be in the process of being made holy. Grow in your trust. Grow in your knowledge. Continue to challenge yourself to know God more. Grow into the salvation, the gift that's been given to you. It's a work that God does in us. Not that we have to do on our own. We don't go and buy more devotionals from our Dells and all those things, but God works in us. It's God who works in us to will and to act according to what he wants, his purpose. So, so we're expecting now for Paul to give us some reasons or some directions or a list of things to do. So if you want to grow and mature in Christ and you want to work, step into your salvation, then here, church in Philippi, is what you do. And this is what he says. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That's the list. There's not a whole bunch of other things. It's not like do this, pray that, make sure you do this, give to that person. It is just two things. Do everything without complaining and arguing. And then he gives a little bit of why. So if we're expecting this giant list, this kind of this is how I grow and mature, but Paul only gives us these small two things, then we need to pay attention. And we need to understand that they apply to me. So we can't pretend that they don't. And before we really understand this idea of complaining and arguing and how that fits into our growth and maturing in Christ, we have to be reminded of the context that we're standing in. Remember, Paul is writing to the church. He is not writing to a bigger kind of Gentile, non-church group of people. He is writing to a gathered group of believers in the town of Philippi saying, Church, listen to me. You've been saved. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. Now continue to work that out. And you want to know how to work it out? Work it out this way, without complaining or arguing. Now we have to understand, if you remember a few weeks ago, a lot of the book of the Philippians was written about unity, about having one mind and one heart and one purpose, because Paul knew that if the church was unified, it could carry out its mission to think and love and live like Jesus. But when division entered the body, when division entered the church, we became divided in our heartbeat and divided in our mission, and we became ineffective. And Paul's not advocating unity, as I've said, like, like we all hold hands and we think the same and we vote the same, we like the same kind of music and everything has to be perfect. Not unity for the sake of inclusiveness, but unity in the, for the sake of our mission. We are very different people. We are made up of all kinds of walks of life. You're from this side of town or from this side of the town. You like to do this, I like to do that. We're very different. We think differently. We vote differently. We have different leanings on different things. But Paul's saying, look, the mission of the church can be the same and we're unified in our mission. It matters. So we've got to understand that do everything without complaining or arguing is first and foremost written in the context of the church. We like to think that it just means, okay, so I've got to go about my life and make sure I don't complain or argue about things. When my boss, when she or he calls me and says, hey, I need you to pick up my dry cleaning, that means, well, all right, well, I'm not going to complain. I'm just going to go pick up my boss's dry cleaning, right? We certainly kind of think that way. We think that that's how it applies to our children. I told you to take out the trash. 
take out the trash. Don't talk back. You know, just do it. Don't complain or argue. Maybe in relationship to our spouses, you know, they say something. We just do it even though we don't want to do it. And somehow we think the Bible says don't complain or argue, and that's what that means. Now, there's some truth here, but really that's a secondary application because the primary context is within the body of the church. Paul's saying, as the church, don't complain or argue, ever. But in everything, don't complain or argue. Now, why? This is so strange to me because I would think that if Paul's talking about how we grow and mature in Christ, he would talk about, listen, feed the poor, get out there, you know, reap the harvest, do things, give, love, boom. But he says, don't complain or argue. And I find this fascinating, and we're going to hear the why in just a second. But I want you to look at those two words, complaining and arguing, because most of us think they don't apply to us. Because I don't complain or argue. I don't know about you. I mean, I never do. It's always something somebody else does. And it annoys me. But I'm fine. I mean, I just sort of take life as it is. You never hear me complaining. You never hear me kind of grumbling or arguing. Just don't do it. And that's how we all think. This is for somebody else. It's for my children. Quit complaining and take out the trash. It doesn't apply to me. So we skip it. We say, that's good. I just need words to live by for somebody else. That wasn't even a joke. I like that. That was good. Um, so, but here's the deal. Complaining is a really interesting word. Paul only uses it one other time in the New Testament, the Greek word that he gets from the idea, the idea of complaining. And it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. And Paul uses it when he's referencing the Israelites' displeasure with God. They are wandering around the desert, frustrated because Moses led them out of Egypt, and now they're just walking around. And they're all kind of going, man, we'd have had a lot better if we just stayed as slaves in Israel. I mean, because now we've got to eat this food that God gave, and it tastes like dirt, and I just don't like it. And they were grumbling. And Paul uses that same word, the word complaining, the Greek word, to talk about the Israelites grumbling. And that's the only other time that he uses it. Now, the reason I mention that is because a lot of times we think complaining is some kind of vocal thing, exercise that I have. I, I complain, I don't like it, so I tell you I don't like it. But really, complaining is an attitude of the heart. It's tied into that idea of grumbling. And it always, almost always, is a result of discontentment. So discontentment in your own life leads you to grumbling and complaining. And not that kind of vocal kick in the dirt, I'm going to file a plaint and put it in the suggestion box, but that attitude that just says, I'm not pleased, and therefore I'm going to pout, I'm going to be frustrated, and I'm going to be bitter. Complaining, grumbling, almost always stems from discontentment. And hear this, discontentment almost always comes from selfishness. Just the way it is. Selfishness and discontentment lead my life to be a life that complains and leads me, right, to a life that says it's about me. And this is what began to happen in the church, even the early church. It wasn't that they were complaining about their life and how poor they were, how rich they were, what they were struggling with. They were complaining about their existence in the body because it was not working for me. See, when we complain, right, we're really not expressing our displeasure of something. We're just expressing our displeasure of how it affects me. Because complaining begins with discontentment and selfishness. And those two things are the roots of so much struggle in the church. So quit thinking that we don't complain, all right? Because we do, because it's rooted in discontentment and selfishness. And Paul says, church, hear this first and foremost. Quit thinking everything's about you, all right? The word argue is actually a really interesting word because it's tied closely to the word complaining, but it's really different. Think about complaining for a moment. If it's an attitude of discontentment, selfishness, and grumbling, it does not have to take, it doesn't take another person for you to live that way. 
I can very much be discontent and frustrated and complain and never vocalize that to somebody else. We've all done it in our lives. We've done it in our marriages, our relationships, or our workplace. You ever had your boss kind of get on to you and you were frustrated? And so instead of being like vocal, you just sort of submarine something. You had a bad attitude or you didn't go in or you were just sort of whatever. You kind of gave a half-hearted attempt to do something. We do it in our marriages all the time. And it's passive and it's a passive-aggressive mentality. And it is an attitude of our heart. And we live it. And we can very much live it alone. Right? In fact, we get mad when people don't recognize that we're doing it. We're trying to do it. But arguing takes a relationship. And we do it with the Lord and we do it with people. Most of us think that we don't argue with God, but we really do. Arguing with God is really just disobedience. Anytime God calls us to do something and we do the opposite or we don't do it, we're living in active argument with the Lord. We're living in disobedience. I mean, it's kind of what Jonah did. Jonah didn't really argue with God. He just sort of ran. We do the same thing. God moves in us, challenges us, and we move, we run, and we live in disobedience. We argue with God, but more so, we argue with people. Now, a lot of times, we don't think that we do, and there's a place in the church for disagreement, and there's a place in the church for discussion, absolutely. But the argument that Paul's talking about is very different than that. When you take the understanding of grumbling and complaining and selfishness and discontentment, and you tie it to the idea of argument, you know what you're left with? You're left with arrogance. And arrogance usually makes itself known in two ways. One, I want you to know me. And two, or I want to lift myself up. I want you to know me. And two, I want to put you down. And this is the way that most of us engage in arguments, especially in our marriages and in the life of the church. I want you to know what I know. Almost every theological argument there is is a demonstration of me trying to show you that I know more. I mean, this is what I lived for four years in seminary. This unhealthy way of saying, I know more than you know, therefore I am correct. And in the process, I'm going to show you what you don't know, right? Arguing in that capacity with selfishness and complaining is rooted in the elevation of me, right, and the depression of you. Now, a lot of us would say we don't do that, but we do that. We argue for the sake of arguing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't even really care, but you drop that bomb in there just to do it right? You know that one word is going to trigger that person to have that response, and what do you do? You say it. And a lot of times we argue just so that we can be heard, and it's a passive, aggressive mentality. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us, right, think these things take place just outside the walls of the church, but if you've ever pulled back the curtain, this is an ugly animal, and it's made up of people that live in selfishness, just like you, just like me, right, and discontentment. And Paul says, listen, Here's the deal, church. Before you begin to apply this and live this in your marriage and in your workplace, we have to do it right here. We have to live in unity here, which means that complaining and arguing, discontentment, selfishness, putting myself first, putting you last, making myself known, myself heard, you down here, has no place. And I find this really fascinating because you think that Paul would be saying something else. He'd say, look, if you want to grow and mature as a church, as a community, as followers of Christ, then do these things. But the only thing he says in this paragraph is to quit complaining and arguing. I find that fascinating because it must be really important. So here's the why. Here's what we get to today. Here's the why. Listen to what Paul says. So do everything without complaining or arguing. Church, first, primary context. So that, verse 15, you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like the stars in the universe as you hold out, or better translation, hold on to the word of life. So Paul's saying, don't complain or argue. You want to know why? Because 
If you live this way, if you live in a way that doesn't complain or argue, if you live in unity and harmony, if the church kind of is united in its mission, we become blameless and pure in a broken generation, right? And we hold out and on to the very word of life, which is Jesus. The church's greatest evangelistic tool, right? Hear me say this. The church's greatest evangelistic tool is how we live amongst each other. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I want you to think about it for a moment. The church's greatest evangelistic tool is how we live and treat each other. Now, this is not the first time that we've heard this. Think back to Jesus' own words in the book of John chapter 13. He is just about to be betrayed and crucified, and he gathers his disciples together, all 12 of them. Judas has not even left yet. And he eats dinner with them, right? Then he takes off all of his clothes and he puts on a towel and he gets a basin and he gets down on their level and he begins to wash their feet, scrubbing their feet. He goes through the whole line of guys scrubbing the dirt off their feet. He comes to Judas, the man that would betray him and sell him out, and he scrubs his feet. And then he stands up in front of all of them, John chapter 13, verse 34, and he says this, a new command I give to you, which would become the church, You 12, this is the command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't look at him and say, listen, I'm getting ready to go through a horrific experience and be taken from you. So here's the deal. It is all on your shoulders. Everything that I've done for the past three years, all the healings, all the goings, all the teachings, all the kingdom of God is comings. You have to do that. You've got to go into the world and proclaim it. You are me now. So get ready. It's going to be a battle. Take the gospel to the world. He doesn't do it. You know what he says? Love each other and people will know you follow me. This is what's fascinating to me about the call of the church. The greatest evangelistic tool that we have is how we love and live together. Why? Why? It's a simple answer. It's a simple answer. Because the great call of the church is to live holy H-O-L, as I spelled it earlier, E-Y, but really it's just a Y. H-O-L-Y, different. That's the call of the church. Different than the world, different than everything about it. To love when love is hard, to be unified when we should be kind of in disunity. The call of the church is to live differently. The call of the church is not to carry the banner and conquer people. The call of the church is to love differently, to love as Jesus loved us, and it begins here. And that is why Paul says, listen to me, you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, you want to continue to work out your salvation, then together, church, cut out the arguing and complaining. Quit it. Stop being about yourself. Stop being discontent, because discontentment is just a deeper expression of your own spiritual bankruptcy. If you're discontent in your life, hear me a little side note say this, if you're discontent, frustrated, because you've got something deeper spiritually you need to deal with. Trust me. But Paul says this, you want to grow mature as a following of Christ, followers, then church, hear me. Live differently. And you'll do what? You will literally shine like stars in the universe as you hold out Jesus. This is how we tell the world about Jesus. We begin to live differently, and it changes the way that who we are. So then the call goes to go out from this place into our other environments, our home environment, our workplace environment, and begin to live live the same way. So the application in wrapping all this up and skipping the last part is this, is really easy. For us as a church, little church and big church, little C, big C, to begin to live in a way that says, God, I want to grow in you, and I know that for me to do that, I've got to cut out the selfishness and the discontent. It just doesn't matter. 
It just doesn't matter. And I want to live in unity. Even when I disagree with someone's ideas, I want to be about the same mission. I want to see the church begin to think and live and love like Jesus, and I'm unified with that person. There are a lot of people in this room that I don't don't agree with, and I bet there's a lot of you that don't agree with me. But you know what? I believe without a shadow of a doubt that we're on the same mission with a heartbeat to show the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the application. We do that together, right? And then now as you walk out these doors, live it as a kind of an explosion of what's taking place in here. Quit complaining and arguing. Quit living in discontentment and selfishness and grumbling around. And quit trying to lift yourself up and push other people down. It's that simple. If you begin to live differently, you will then shine literally like the star of the universe, stars of the universe, and people will see Christ in you because you will be living wholly different and it begins here. You're going to be around a lot of family in the next couple of weeks. Don't ignore this. Let's pray.